0: As you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, it is the first book after Proverbs. We're in this uh, series using Old Testament wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job, as well as other Old Testament poetry, mainly in the Psalms. And we've titled this series, The Best Life. What is the best way to live life according to what God has revealed, primarily in these books? Of course, you know, we're taking into account the rest of Scripture as well. But these books are known for their practicality. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you don't see uh, a lot of mention of the covenants or temple or sacrifice. You don't see a lot of the mention of the law. And it's there. It's implied. It's intended to understand wisdom, wisdom literature in light of the rest of the Bible, But it's not explicit. The wisdom literature is here's God's revealed truth and here's how you live it out in everyday life. This is what it looks like practically to live as God's people under his rule. Many saints, for instance, for years have walked through the 31 chapters of Proverbs each month. One proverb per day just to fill their mind and their heart with practical wisdom on what life looks like or should look like every day. But in Proverbs, it is simple and straightforward. You do these things... And they are, that are good, that are wise, that are hardworking, that are honest, that are loving, that are helpful. You do these things and you are rewarded and blessed. And life goes well. And life is better for the people that you're in life with as you live this straightforward, normal, wise life. The way of God. What you sow is what you reap. And honestly, it's how most of life works. You want to have friends, be a friend. You want to have stuff, work hard. You, you want to uh, be a, a contributing good member of society, then be wise, be thrifty, be kind and compassionate, loving. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is not that book and does not present life like that. Now, this is hinted at in, in different places in the Proverbs. In one instance, Proverbs eighteen seventeen, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. Proverbs is the first to say this case. And then along comes Ecclesiastes. Yeah, but what about all this? Ecclesiastes is a book that comes along to cross-examine the life described in Proverbs and point out issues with the straightforward life. It's an incredibly unique book of the Bible, so different than any other book. Tim Keller has a helpful way to think about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says it's a book of questions. Not straightforward answers. There are some. They're hinted at. But mostly it's a book of questions. In fact, he suggests that maybe we should reorder uh, Ecclesiastes and put it first in the Bible. Here's a a bunch of questions that all humanity, if they're honest about themselves, if they're honest about the frustrations they have with life, here's a, a bunch of questions humanity would ask. Here's the angst that humanity feels. And here's the rest of the Bible to explore how God seeks to solve those questions. Ecclesiastes is a great book to read or study with someone who is skeptical about Christianity. It voices much of the angst of humanity. So last week we focused on some of the major themes because no matter what passage you study in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to keep coming back to these major themes. Life under the sun is the focus, not eternal life, but life on earth. And this life is full of futility. A major word in the book of Ecclesiastes, translated in some Bibles as futility, in some others as vanity, in some Bibles as meaninglessness, it comes from the Hebrew word that literally means breath. Life is a breath, a vapor, a mist, like your breath on a cold morning, like smoke. It's real. You see it, but you reach out to try and grab it, and you can't. You can't hold on to it. It's here, and then it's gone, and that is life, whether it's good or whether whether it's bad. It's here, and then it's gone. You see the best of life. You see and get the best of life, knowledge, wisdom, possessions, fame, success. It's all elusive, Death and judgment are coming for all of us. God is sovereign over all of this. And while He is not responsible or the agent of evil in our world, He's still in control of it. Therefore, we will be held accountable to Him one day. Therefore, we live life in awe of Him. We live life obeying His commands and enjoying the gifts of His grace. These are the major themes that keep coming up again and again in this book. And we'll see it today in the passage we're going to focus on in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Indeed... I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also it is for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already disappeared and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. Father, we thank you for your word, even the parts of your word that are hard to understand. You have given us your spirit, the author of the scriptures. So illuminate the scriptures this morning. Teach us what you're trying to help us understand and then empower our repentance, empower our faith, empower our confession of sin and our trust and belief in Jesus so that we are transformed, we are changed and we can share your love with other people in life. Bless this time, Father. May you get all the glory and the honor we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In these first six verses, we see the recurrent themes of life under the sun. Obviously, you see God's sovereignty in verse one, where He says, "The deeds of everyone are in God's hands." The word for "hands" in the Old Testament has the connotation of power and control. If you want to do something, you take it into your hands, control something to do something. So, when you see that that reference to God, this anthropomorphism, that's reference to God. It's always His control; He's overseeing things. Ecclesiastes 2.24, There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hands. Now, we still have deeds to do, so our deeds are in his hands, are under his control, but we still have deeds. We're not programmed robots. Another theme that's throughout this book is a judgment before God one day, a judgment that is legitimate because we make real choices. We have real responsibilities, so we have real accountability But all of that, all of our real choices and our deeds that don't negate or extinguish the sovereignty of God. Ultimately, it all falls under His control because He is God and we are not. Even in life under the sun that is chaotic, unexplainable, seemingly unfair and upside down, we still live within the hands of God under His control. God's sovereignty. You also see the frustration of life under the sun. The second part of verse 1. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Honestly, we don't know how people are going to treat us. You hope. You know, I'm in this relationship with this person. I hope they'll love me in return. I hope they won't hate me. But we don't really know how everyone's going to treat us all the time. And even if it is somewhat predictable now, based on the relationships you have with people, There's no promise it'll always be like that. Couples who pledge their undying love for each other on their wedding day one day get divorced. Siblings who get along today and love each other one day fight over mom and dad's possessions after they're gone. Parents and children who get along so great now one day are estranged and no longer have a relationship. We don't know. We live in this frustrating, upside-down, topsy-turvy life. Verse 2, there's one fate for everyone, evil and good. The one who is religious and sacrifices and the one who does it. Now again, see the contrast with Proverbs and the normal life that's portrayed in the wisdom literature. For instance, in Psalm 1, part of the wisdom literature, very straightforward life. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to run. That is how we like life. Black and white. Straightforward. I do this, I prosper, I bear fruit. I, I don't do those things, there's punishment. Good people do the, the right things and good things happen to them. The wicked do evil things and bad things happen to them. We like life like that, predictable. Ecclesiastes says it's not like that. It's, it's the same for everyone. Everyone is afflicted and suffering at the hands of evil and sin and destruction. And then we all die. You can do what's good and not get rewarded. You can do what's evil and seemingly get rewarded. And life go well for you. That is life under the sun. This book is uh, full of sarcasm. Verse 4 is a possible explanation or example of this sarcasm. All those disagreements about the interpretation. Where he says, there's hope for those who are alive. Wait, you just said it was bleak and hopeless because it's all the same for everyone. And then death. And now you're saying there's hope for the living. Where's the hope? It could be he's being sarcastic. It could also be that he's saying, "Well, they're still alive, and so maybe it'll get better." Whatever the case, it's all bitter and confusing. Well, um, uh, what does he say? Uh, verse four: um, "Since a live dog is better than a dead lion," what does that mean? That's Ecclesiastes for you in a nutshell. And it's even the form of the book is intended to show us the chaos of life. There's this and there's that. There's this, it's running circles, it's repeating itself, it's confusing. That is life under the sun. It's chaos. How is there hope in that? It's honest and raw. So, in light of the fact, God is sovereign over this ball of dirt and all of life under the sun that is filled with frustration, that is experienced by everyone until we die. How then should we live? That's where I want to focus the rest of our time. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life. And in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now, this might not be what you expect, given the reality and the the frustrations of life, the inevitability of death. You might not expect the writer to say, enjoy life. It sounds a little bit like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, which Jesus Condemns in Luke 12 is the wisdom of the fool who builds up barns to stash all his possessions and accumulates so much that he says, let's just have a party for the rest of life and quit working. Like it sounds a little irresponsible when you understand the severity of life under the sun. Should we be more serious? Should we be telling us to pray and evangelize and worship and do things that are more responsible sounding? And like, maybe this is one of those sarcastic sections where he's kind of tongue-in-cheek, wink-wink wisdom, like, yeah, 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 just, it doesn't matter. Just go have fun. Well, let's walk through and see if this is indeed a sensible way to live. Four things to notice about this passage. Number one, this passage is full of Commands. Just in those three verses, seven, eight, nine, ten, four verses, there are seven commands go, eat, drink, wear clothes, put oil on your head, enjoy your wife, work with all your might. God is commanding, not suggesting, not hinting, but boldly telling us, go do this. And when God commands and we don't do it, what do we call that? Sin. It's called sin. So this is not a non-serious life of indulgence separated from our worship of God. This is God commanding us to do this. And God isn't flippant about commands. He doesn't just wake up one day and, well, let's see, let's tell him to do this today. That sounds fun. Does not spin a wheel and come up with something new? When God commands, it flows from his character. It's a, a reflection of who he is. And his commands aren't flippant. It's not intended to confine us. It's not intended to make our lives miserable. His commands are actually uh, outpouring of his love for us. His desire for us to experience life best. Just like with our boys, when we go out in the front yard and play, we're right there on, on a busy street. We talk to them all the time about not running into the road. We've taken them and stood right by the road when cars were passing by to feel the weight of the cars, the power of the cars to put a holy fear in them of what would happen to them if they ran into the road and a car came by. And we're out there playing, we see them running too close to the road. We're, we're not, uh, oh, Timothy, son, we're yelling, stop, don't go any further. Not being unloving, we're not trying to keep them from having fun. Our love wants to protect them to enjoy the fun that they can have within the confines of our safe yard. And it is even more so with the commands of God. His commands are reflections of his love. We find out later in the scriptures in 1 John 5, this is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. What God commands for those who love Him aren't a burden because we can do them out of love for Him. We love to obey, and we love to obey because God's love has been poured into us when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus Christ. We have the mind of Christ, and so the commands of God aren't seen by us as restrictive or oppressive like our Father in heaven is keeping us from enjoying life. Because we know where true life and joy are experienced within the safe confine of the commands of God, of our Father in heaven. And not only are the commands not a burden because they're motivated by love, they're not a burden because we can actually obey these commands. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, which a non-regenerate person can't do because they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God. So when God commands, He's not telling us, do this and you can't do it. He's telling his children, no, you can do it. You have everything you need inside of you to obey the things I'm telling you to obey. I'm not asking you to do things that are impossible. So it's not like if I were to to tell Tim, scold him one day, why don't you get the yard mowed, Tim? What are you doing all day? Running around, playing, building stuff? Get out there and mow the yard, son. Like you would say, you're ridiculous. What kind of father are you? But, But I do know what Tim can and can't do. And we do give him commands that are age appropriate. We do celebrate when he does those things. And we do coach him up and and call him to do more things as he gets older and he gets ready and hold him accountable for that. Because we we know what he can and can't do. And and I'm an imperfect father trying to raise my son, but your father in heaven is perfect and knows you and I much better than we know ourselves. And he knows when in our life what you have and what you don't have, what you've been through and what you haven't been through, and your full story. And he can look at you and your life and say to you, Go eat, drink, enjoy life and fully expect you to be able to do that despite all the excuses we may bring before him about why we can't. I don't have this. I've been through this. This person says this about me. I've suffered this. I can't enjoy this life you've given me. And your Father in heaven is commanding you to enjoy the life He's given you to enjoy the things of life He's given you right now. Go, like instantly leave this place. Not right now, but in a little while. Leave this place. Go and enjoy this life. Enjoy the gifts of His grace. I'm not calling you to do something you can't do. I've given you everything you need to do it. He's not placing a burden or weight on you that will crush you. He's opening the door to a feast. Life with Him. Come and enjoy the life I've given you. Secondly, this describes a life of joyfully worshiping and enjoying the physical created world. So he's given us these commands to enjoy worshipfully, thankfully, the created world that we live in. This, this same world that was just described in verses 1 through 6 as full of futility, frustration, angst, evil, this same world. For those tempted to think that the only spiritual and serious things we can do in our life under the sun are things like read our Bible, pray, evangelize, worship, give money to the church, sing songs, see this list as new ways to worship and experience the joy of the Lord. In fact, don't see this list as um, uh, exhaustive. See this list as representative. In other words, add to the list. This is just a few examples of what you can do to enjoy life under the sun, life in this physical created world. God created the physical world and said it was good. So yes, the physical world is cursed by sin. And so eating food can turn into gluttony and eating disorders. And drinking can turn into drunkenness. And loving your wife can turn into idolatry. Or if you're like Solomon, well, one woman's good, so why not 700? That would be even better, right? And work can become our identity. But the possibilities of these physical realities becoming sinful doesn't negate the inherent value God gave them when he made them and gave them to us to enjoy as we enjoy him. God made them good. And guys, we're headed to a day of the new heavens and new earth, these physical realities coming down to earth. In the eternal state, we're not flying away to the clouds to float around as wisp of eternal mist. Jesus is making creation new, all things new. And what we are going to get is a recreated heavens and earth that we'll get to enjoy to the fullest forever. And we, we, we know that much about it from the scriptures. And it's amazing. And we're going to have forever to enjoy it and figure it out. And when we understand that as believers that that's where we're headed, then we really can enjoy these physical realities now, like, unlike anybody else, because we know that these are just the hors d'oeuvres. This is the sample platter, the charcuterie board, or however you say that word. This is just a taste of what's to come. And when we eat and we drink and we enjoy relationships and work and we enjoy the life God's given us to enjoy, we, we can enjoy them to the fullest because it tastes Like home. This is where we're headed, where we get this all the time with no sin. And we truly can enjoy it in the deepest way. So the worship of Jesus doesn't end when the last song is sung or in prayer, pray today, brothers and sisters. You leave this place, you go to lunch, you raise your chicken strip at Cain's to the sky with the cane sauce running down your arm, into your beard. You say, thank you, Jesus, for this glorious gift of Cain's chicken strips. You take a delicious, juicy bite, and you're, you're thinking about all the things God did to make this moment happen for you. He created chickens. He created us to be able to harvest them in multitudes nobody could ever imagine. He created this thing called batter that you combine with chicken and oil that makes this crispy goodness. And you do it to such a way that people think you're crazy and weird. But you understand all that went into God giving you this gift to his son and daughter to enjoy to the fullest. You can do that at Cain's because that other chicken place who thinks they're so holy isn't open today. (laughs) Maybe they should read Ecclesiastes and bring more enjoyment to our life. All through this passage, it's enjoyment of the physical realities of life. Eat, drink, drink, Wear clothes that are white. Let oil be on your head. In that context, it's talking about dressing in a way that shows joy and not mourning or repentance. Wearing oil, literally wiping it on their, their faces is a way to show gladness. So whatever that means for you, not going to make a list of rules here, but whatever way your physical appearance can reflect the joy of Christ in you. Maybe you wear bright cabana wear. Maybe it's draping yourself in velvet. Maybe it's hoodies and sweats and slides or jeans and t-shirts. Whatever it is for you, figure it out and dress happy as a reflection of the happiness of the Lord. Work hard. Do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever job you have, the dream job you may one day have or the job you have right now that you're grinding out to provide for you and your family. All work can be used by God to bless and bring the light of God's kingdom to more and more corners of society. I see some guys at a natural gas storage facility um, regularly, a couple of times a month. It's a place that's basically a hole in the ground that's filled with natural gas. And every so often they pump it out. And every so often they pump it back in. Most people don't even know this place exists. There's eight guys who work shift work that man this place 24-7. And one of the ways I encourage them is like when I turn on my stove and the gas comes on and we cook delicious food or turn on my heater in the winter or the fireplace in the winter to warm the house, to make it a place we want to be, I think about you guys. You, you may not think anyone knows you're here, but, but I know you're here and other people know you're here to make our lives better. There's value to the job that you have. Whatever your job is, there's value to that job. So do it with all of your might And do it in a way that enjoys God. Like tomorrow morning, you go back to work. Or when you go to school this fall, students. What does it look like for you to do that job or to be a student and do it in a way that is an enjoyment of God? There is a way. Remember, he's commanding this. It's not impossible. It's possible because his spirit lives within you. So go. And do all of this now. Hurry. Because there will come a day, a day in Sheol, when you can't enjoy all of this. Now, Sheol is the place of the dead in the Old Testament. You see it time and time again. They didn't have the full revelation of God that we would later get throughout the New Testament to understand the eternal state, the heavens and the earth coming down. That, that was later. Their understanding of, of Sheol and death was they go to this, this dark place with family and friends and other people of God, and they, and they live forever. And that's all they knew. So thank God for the full revelation of God through all of the Scriptures and through Christ. But you can't do those things in Sheol. Thirdly, you do this in community. He says with your wife and really all of this. The culture of the Bible is written in both the Old Testament and New Testament in a communal culture. There's no concept of our individualistic Western way of life. So in the culture of the Bible, the culture in which the Bible is written, the loneliness epidemic that's increasing in our country would be unrecognizable. Community and togetherness was a way of life and absolutely normal and necessary to survive and live as God's people. Yes, Jesus went away for solitude with the Father, but that wasn't how he lived most of his life. There's just a few mentions of that. Most of his life he was living with people. And then lastly, this describes us enjoying our life, not the life of others. So all through this passage, you see this word, your. This is us enjoying the life God has given us. This is not us swiping through Instagram and seeing the lives of others and wishing away our life or being discontent and unsatisfied until we get the life of someone else. Oh, well, if I had their life, if I had their family, if I had their finances, if I had their abilities, their looks, their access, their fame and notoriety, oh, if, if I had that life, then sure, I would enjoy life. But have you seen my life? I mean, really? We got six kids in our house. How much fun is that, right? They stay up to midnight. They wake up at six. Somewhere in the middle, we sleep. But remember who wrote this book either Solomon or someone like Solomon, someone who had it all and now writes a bitter skeptic book about having it all isn't as great as you might think it is. In other words, affluence isn't enough to fill the void in your soul. Our contentment, therefore, is not dependent on our circumstances changing. Our contentment and joy is dependent on our perspective changing. Joy isn't centered in having everything you want. It's dependent on having the life of Christ inside of you and seeing life through his eyes. So this life of exuberant enjoyment doesn't begin when you get something you don't have. It begins when you see and let Jesus settle your soul with himself and you see all that you have right now as extravagant gifts of his grace that are more than enough to enjoy. More than enough to obey these commands. And guys, it starts really small. You wake up in the morning. Thank you for the gift of your grace that I can see today. That I can hear. I got blood still pumping through my heart and pumping through my body. That there's breath in my lungs. Thank you, God, that by your grace, I have the physical ability to get up out of the bed and there is air conditioning in my house that is keeping me cool as I sleep and wake up. There is a roof over my head so that I'm not sleeping in the elements. I've got clothes that I can put on, comfortable slippers in the morning. There's coffee already brewed waiting for me in the kitchen. I've got the sound of all these wonderful people in my house still sleeping, which is even a better sound when you wake up in the morning. I got money to be able to pay for all this. All gifts of your grace, and I haven't even been awake for five minutes. It's just the beginning, like it starts there, seeing everything you have right now as enough to enjoy the life that God's given you to enjoy. And as you do that, you enjoy Him. Some concluding thoughts, three things to tie all of this together. Number one, God is commanding us to find great joy in our everyday physical lives. Is God really commanding us to enjoy our lives? Most of the time when we talk about joy, we talk about it in terms, well, it's, it's not happiness. So happiness is dependent on your circumstances. Joy is present all the time because joy is Jesus, J-J. You remember that. That's how we really only think about joy. So joy is something that we talk about more in the context of joy and suffering. you got to grind it out and still have joy when life is at its worst. We don't talk as much about the exuberant joy. Or if we do talk about the exuberant joy in life, we put so many parameters and rules and qualifications on it that it's more work than joy. i got to remember, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? It's not freedom. It's bondage. Yet here is God commanding us to enjoy the everyday physical realities of our life. It's throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. And we realize that our failure to obey this command, when we realize He's commanding us this, is an offense. It is a sin before God. If you're not enjoying the life that God's given you to enjoy right now, that that is a sin. As parents, we love to give gifts to our kids. We love to surprise them. But what if each time you gave a gift to your child for them to enjoy, they took it, put it back in the box, and stuck it in the back of the closet. And they never really enjoyed it. How would you respond to that? That ungrateful kid. Do I have the receipt? I'm never giving them something like that again. Like part of the enjoyment as parents in giving your children gifts is them enjoying the gift. It's not just check they got it. Check, we bought it, we completed our Christmas list this year. It's them enjoying the things that you gave them to enjoy. Our Father in heaven finds great delight in giving his children gifts to enjoy, and we actually enjoy them. Way more than we do as parents because we're sinful and imperfect. Enjoying God is not just a spiritual reality, but it is deeply physical because God made this world and made it good Enjoying God is not just something you do with your Bible and in prayer and spiritual things, but it's eating food, enjoying relationships, dressing and clothes, working your job, because those are also gifts of His grace. Douglas Jones, in his work on Deuteronomy 27 through 30, he writes that Christian cultures have failed throughout church history not primarily because of insufficient theological education or poor doctrine or inadequate evangelism or weak leadership, but he says Christian cultures have failed throughout church history because of a lack of joy. Because of a lack of joy. And he traces this back to Deuteronomy 28, 46 through 47, God commanding his people before they go into the promised land, These curses will be a sign and a wonder against you and your descendants forever because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and a cheerful heart even though you had an abundance of everything. It's not just that he didn't serve the Lord. He didn't serve the Lord with a joyful and cheerful heart. And he goes on to say, when we enjoy the physical gifts of God's grace, we most resemble the self-giving love found within the triune community of God. And the more we resemble God with our joy, than if we try and grow a church culture based on duty and obedience. Jesus was criticized by his opponents for being a drunken, a glutton, even though he never sinned. Because he spent so much time partying with sinners. Spent so much time having fun. Like, literally having fun. You know, does it say Jesus laughed in the Gospels? The mirth of Jesus, C.S. Lewis says, God's waiting to show that to us when we're in the eternal state. Maybe that's true. We don't know. I just can't imagine him sitting there with like a straight face. Ah. Uh, That's a funny story, but I'm so serious. I'm Jesus, by the way. I've come to do serious things. Like He was partying with people without sinning, enjoying people. Are you okay with us being in that kind of church? So filled with Jesus and full of his joy that we literally enjoy life in odd and strange ways, but it's also contagious and attractive to our lost culture? because we're spending so much time with them, enjoying the things that they enjoy without sin. There's work to get us there more and more, but Jesus is faithful. He is with us. He is going to keep working in us to get us to that place. There is a time to weep, but there is also a time to rejoice. Secondly, this is only possible when we see every aspect of our physical lives as a gift of His grace. That we enjoy with God... Instead of enjoying enjoying all that we have been given as our God. So we only live this life when we see everything we've been given as a gift to enjoy with God. Instead of taking those gifts and making them our God. Maybe part of what's holding us back is we're, we're afraid to mess up. We're so afraid that we're going to turn our enjoyment of God's gifts into idolatry that we don't even try. Or... Maybe that's exactly what we've done. We've turned God's gifts of grace in our life into idolatry. We've made them our gods. We either turn every gift of God has given us into a God that we worship and we attempt to enjoy the gift, not as a gift, but as a God. The problem when we do that is they make horrible gods and in fact turn into oppressive masters. And we become enslaved by the very thing that we're supposed to enjoy as a gift. There's tons of examples you could think of yourself, but God, God gives us vehicles as a gift of his grace to enjoy, to use. Enjoy your vehicle. Have fun in it. Buy something you like. Buy something you can afford. Okay? Keep it clean. But if my identity and my image becomes dependent on the vehicle that I drive, if that vehicle is me, it's a reflection of me, who I am, If that vehicle becomes something I'm so obsessive about protecting and keeping a certain way that if someone borrows it and they scratch it up, I care more about the vehicle being damaged than relationship, the person that I let borrow it, so I don't let anybody borrow it. If I wrap so, if I turn that gift of God's grace, that vehicle into something I'm worshiping that I need, I depend upon, then that vehicle becomes my master. I become its slave. And a vehicle is a horrible master. Literally anything in life, any person in life, you can substitute into vehicle. And you see how idolatry works when we quit enjoying God through his gifts and we make the gifts our God's. The exuberant God-given joy only happens as you see every single thing you have, every person in your life, everything as a gift of His good grace to be enjoyed with God, not to be enjoyed as our God. And guys, when deep, exuberant joy in life is missing, it's often because we've got that flipped. Almost always you can look at an area of your life, a thing in your life, a person in your life, and you have made that thing a person God. And you're now serving it or them instead of the one true God. Almost always that's what's robbing us of our joy. I've got to be right. I've got to have my way all the time. Now you made yourself God. And your life is not full of joy. Lastly, this is only doable because we know that life under the sun is not all the life there is. This is only doable because, as a writer of Ecclesiastes know, life under the sun, this phrase that's used throughout this book, is not all the life there is. This is part of what makes this book so unique. It voices the perspective of a skeptic, but not a skeptic lacking faith, but full of faith, but questioning everything, even questioning his questioning. Which honestly isn't done by many of the skeptics in our culture. Many uh, who don't know the Lord love to throw stones at God and Christianity and question all of it, but are much more reluctant to question their own belief system. And one of the great ways to engage, engage people like that is to simply ask questions about their belief system and have them honestly assess what are the holes and inconsistencies in their own belief system because they are there. They are there. The voice of the skeptic in Ecclesiastes, by repeating this phrase, Life under the sun is a clear expression of the reality of God. That there is life beyond the sun that belongs to God. This constant expression that there is a God in the future judgment shows his faith even in the midst of his angst and questioning. And guys, why this is good for us, what makes this kind of life possible is that it reminds us we are not God. We can't be reminded of this enough. We are not God. We are human. The original temptation in the garden was to be like God. We wanted to take his place, know what he knows. Maybe he isn't good. He's been holding something from us, according to this serpent thing over here. We can't trust him. We can only trust ourselves now and what we know. And Ecclesiastes comes along and exposes our humanness. We want to know it all, we want to have it all, we want to do it all, and we want to live forever. We want to be the kings of our own kingdom. And this book crushes that. We're just one human among billions. The dent we think we make in the course of human history is like a gnat on an elephant. We are one grain of sand floating around in the ocean. And rather than hurting our feelings because we're not as amazing and special as we think we are, and we're not the world changers we've been told we would be, rather than crushing us, it sets us free to live and enjoy and be the image bearers God has created us to be. It crushes what needs to be crushed in us, our pride. And it causes us to relax and enjoy our brief time on this earth. I've told a few people this, that one of the big takeaways for me over the last few weeks as I've been studying this book has just been to relax, just to rest, breathe. The universe and God's plans for my future don't hinge on me nearly as much as I think it does. On me getting everything exactly right. The future of my kids and their well-being and their ability to thrive doesn't depend upon them doing everything I say exactly the way I say it. My ideas aren't always the best ideas, even though I've loved to tell them over the years, 97% of the time I'm right. It's not true. The future of this church, its ability to thrive and be healthy, doesn't rest on me or any other leader being perfect and making every decision or making every decision perfectly. We work so hard to plan everything out perfectly. We're such angst when it doesn't work out the way or doesn't seem to work out the way we think it should work out. The health and thriving and spiritual vitality of everyone who is a part of this church doesn't hinge on me or any leader being perfect or being a perfect pastor or doing everything just right to fix them. (sighs) Dad's got this. Dad's got me and Dad's got you. I can breathe. Okay. I'll do what I can do. And do it with joy. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us Everything. Who can bring a charge or accusation against God's elects? God. God is the one who justifies, not other people. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. So therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus will not be condemned. And He is at the right hand, constantly interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rest. If you got Jesus, you got everything. If he's got you, enjoy him. And if he doesn't, let today be the day of your salvation. As you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus and believe that he's done everything necessary for you to be made right with God. Father, we are so thankful that you are a good father. You, you know us so well. You know what we need. You've supplied everything to meet every need, even needs a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We don't even know we're coming. You're at work right now to take care of us. And in all of that, you ask us to rest, relax, and enjoy you and all the good things that you've given. Not to be lazy or indulgent, but to work hard, but not as though the universe hinges on us. So help us to be those people. Help us to live with this joy because we have Jesus. And if there's anyone here who doesn't, help them to see that today Jesus is here. The gospel is still powerful and salvation is still available. If they would turn from their sins... And trust in him. Make that happen because you love him. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.